So uh, we get to do, I, th- I think, one of the most doctrinally dense psalms of all of them this morning, that's Psalm 14. So let's pray for a moment and ask the Lord to begin our Lord's Day well. Our Father, we come to you this morning so thankful to gather together as your people. The Lord's Day is the best day. Every week we get to leave the cares of the world behind and be refueled in our determination to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to enjoy the sweet fellowship of the saints, to enjoy the songs of our faith, and to warm our hands at the campfire of the truth of God's Word. And I pray that today, Lord, you would continue our striving toward Christ-likeness, toward godliness. Help us this day in Psalm 14 to see the majesty of your truth and the wisdom of your mind as you give to us the mind of Christ. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll get to Psalm 14 in a moment, but I I want to, first of all, start talking about kind of some assumptions that I think uh, typical American evangelicalism makes about the Old Testament in particular. Uh, Just in a general sense, first of all, to me it's shocking how the majority of Christians, they really don't know what to do with the Old Testament. For most, it is a series of stories with a moral lesson here or there. And uh, even maybe you read through it every 10 years or, or just little stories here and there. But another assumption that's made about the Old Testament writings that maybe is a little more uh, detailed is that the writers were somehow, when they're writing, were, were in some sort of trance or a fog or that they, they really had no idea what they were writing. And this is uh, particularly the case in a lot of covenant theology circles, that Old Testament writers were just sort of blindly writing, and that's important to their camp because they also say that the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament and so uh, the Old Testament writers would say, well, okay, I guess that's what it means now since I was in a fog or a trance. Um, and I'm being overly simplistic. Uh, but the reality is if you asked an Old Testament writer, do you know what you're writing? I, I think, I don't know what the Hebrew for duh is, but that's what they would say. They, of course I know what I'm writing. I, I don't think we would ever say that about Paul. We wouldn't say that Paul was somehow walking around in a trance and just wrote Romans you know, while he was sleepwalking or something. But this idea of the Old Testament writers not knowing what they were writing, this couldn't be further from the truth. Not only were the Old Testament writers highly aware of what they were writing, but they didn't write in a vacuum. They were extremely well-versed, and the pun is intended, in what had already been given in the Old Testament so far. Remember, the Old Testament wasn't written all in one day. It was written over a period of a thousand years. And the writers consciously and carefully and scrupulously built upon the revelation that had already been previously given from others in the centuries before them. And and I, I wish I had time to really go through this, but for example, Jeremiah clearly knew the writings of Moses. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 is a reflection of Deuteronomy 30. And so forth. Daniel knew Jeremiah's writings. Zechariah knew Isaiah's writings. We can draw these, these conclusions very easily because we see them building theology one upon another. 
And these authors knew when they were writing what God directed them to write. Some of them received direct revelation, hearing literally the voice of God dictating to them. Others wrote under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, but they were very conscious of the final product as being divine. For example, David was not in a fog when he wrote Psalm 110.1, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. David was fully aware that he was writing of two divine persons that we know as, the, as God the Father and God the Son. There's no way David thought that up on his own. It was divine revelation that gave him the knowledge that the Lord, who will have his enemies as a footstool, as the rest of the psalm goes on to explain, he will crush the kings of the earth, he'll render justice to all nations. And he describes in Psalm 110 what the book of Revelation calls the battle of Armageddon at the return of Christ. And so if you asked David face to face, do you have any idea what you're writing? He would be able to give a a lengthy explanation from a prophetic viewpoint of a coming Messiah. Perhaps him more than, than many because he had a Messiah promised to his family. And so with all that in mind, in the very same way in Psalm 14... David gives us a very dense theology. And in fact, you could come at this psalm from a multiple uh, variety of angles. We could come at it from the angle of anthropology, the study of mankind. Psalm 14 is 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 a terrific theology of mankind. We could come at it from the angle of hamartiology, the study of sin in mankind. Extremely detailed. Or we could come at it from uh, one of my favorites, Israelology. The future of saved Israel in Psalm 14 is very clear. He works his way toward that. But this morning, I want to focus on his theological framework in soteriology, the study of salvation. So I'm going to read the psalm. I'm going to, we're just going to walk through it briefly as a whole, and then I'm going to show you why this is Really a a masterpiece of soteriology. So let's look together at Psalm 14. It is for the choir director of David. The wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God. They act corruptly. They commit abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight Anyone who seeks after God, they have all turned aside. All together, they have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of iniquity not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but Yahweh is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores his captive people, may Jacob rejoice, may Israel be glad. So just to kind of peruse the psalm briefly, I just want to observe a few details here. Verse 1 reveals what some might call practical atheism. The wicked fool says in his heart, there is no God. They act corruptly. They commit abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. 
Now, this may be speaking of what we know as an atheist, someone who literally denies the existence of God or the the existence of any God of any kind. That's not what David has in mind. In the ancient Near East, there were no such thing as atheists. If you didn't believe in the one true living God, you believed in a pantheon of gods, depending on your local region. But there really wasn't a person who said there are no gods. Everyone believed in gods of some sort. So what this is more likely speaking of is really revealed by what these people are doing. They act corruptly. They commit abominable deeds. In other words, they are acting as if there is no accountability to a God that will hold them to their actions. So they are practical atheists. They might believe in their mind there's some sort of deity out there, but they don't act like it. They don't live like it. They don't live as if there's any accountability. Verses 2 and 3 gives us a picture of God from a very human standpoint. It's really kind of a metaphorical picture. It's as if God is is looking around and he's searching desperately. Again, it's just a, a low human picture to help us understand to see if there's even a single human being who would seek him of his own accord. Verse 3 says that the answer is that no one seeks him of his own accord. Verse 4 issues a warning to the evildoers. They hate the people of God. They eat up my people as they eat bread. They refuse to call upon God for salvation. They act in total spiritual ignorance. They don't know what they don't know. You, you can't debate with an unbeliever about the Bible because you can't use biblical logic with them because they, they can't grasp it. They can't get it. First Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says that spiritual things are revealed to spiritual people and they're understood by the Spirit of God. And so you can't have a meaningful discussion with someone who wants to debate the Bible with you. You can have a meaningful discussion with someone who wants to ask questions because they're coming to a place where they want to learn. But you can't debate the Bible with an unbeliever with any, uh, any fruitfulness. Verse 5 looks ahead prophetically. It's looking ahead to a day when the wicked realize that they've incurred the wrath of God. There they are in great dread for God is with the righteous generation. But uh, we have to be very clear about this. And Revelation 6 helps us understand this. There they are in great dread, but not unto repentance. Revelation 6, Revelation 9, uh, a couple of other places gives examples of people knowing that God is in the middle of judging the earth, and yet they refuse to repent. And so they're dreading what God will do to them, but they're not repenting. In verse 6, David speaks of the evildoer, that he arrogantly acts against the afflicted. The afflicted is a good word for those who aren't strong in worldly terms. They're not big and powerful, but they do have the Lord as their refuge. David says they shame the counsel of the afflicted. They look disgustedly at the life and the values and the morals and the ethics and the standards of believers in Christ. And in verse 7, David longs for Israel to finally be at peace, to finally be at rest from her enemies. And he, and he rightly says that salvation, the salvation of Israel will come from Zion, out of Zion, from Jerusalem. That when God restores his captive people, it will only be because there's a king in Jerusalem who's more powerful than I am, more powerful than all the enemies of God. And in that day, Jacob or Israel will rejoice and be glad 
and, and I have to say this for all who would say, well, the church has replaced Israel. So many times in the Old Testament, God is very, very precise. Jacob, that's a technical term for people descended from Jacob. And so he's very precise. So we could take many lessons from that, just from that brief little survey. But I want to focus in a little harder on what I would say is an inspired master class in soteriology. And I want to break this down into five lessons that I, I think are worthy of a, a seminar on the doctrine of salvation. The first lesson, and I'm going to give you sentences here. The first lesson is mankind is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. Believe it or not, I narrowed that down to as few words as I could. Mankind is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. In verse 1, David says that people act corruptly. This is a, a specific phrase in Hebrew that means acting in a way that destroys the lives of other people, that hurts people, that uh, there, there's no care about this. It's the, it's the classic politician who, uh, to please a donor, helps a law pass that, that hurts 100,000 people. There's no, there's no care for that. He says they do abominable deeds, This is a specific word which means things that desecrate the ways of God. Doing things uh, that that move against God's ethic. And then, just in case we might think that David's just talking about just a few really, really bad people on earth, he says there's none who does good. There's no one who does good. And your New Testament mind is remembering that Paul quotes this in Romans 3. He quotes Psalm 14 multiple places, actually. So how many of mankind are utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction? All of them, and completely. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. What does it mean? This means that there is not a category of person where there's a spiritual capability, where there's a spark of faith or a little flame that just has to be fanned by the Lord. There's no spiritual goodness in them. I remember learning about atheists as a, as a child. And I, I think I actually had nightmares. How can you not believe in God? And they were portrayed to me as that there's not very many of them, and, but they're, they're wicked. Like they practically have horns and a red cape and they're, they're just the worst people on, on planet Earth. And they, it was terrifying to me. And for many years, I'd read Psalm 14.1. Oh, this is talking about those few really horrible people, but it says this is all of them. Mankind is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. All of them. There's a second lesson. God has no compelling reason to save anyone. God has no compelling reason to save anyone. Verses 2 and 3 Picture this metaphorical search that God makes to see if there's anyone who's yearning for salvation. Anyone who's a little bit more moral, a little bit more good, a little bit more vile as being wor- uh, viable rather as being worthy of God's affection that, that perhaps, oh look, here's a guy. This guy, he, he's just a little nicer. He's nice to his neighbors. He, he, he feeds his dogs and cats on time. He's a nice guy. He's worthy of salvation. Well, in fact, far from being spiritually worthy, verse 3 says they have become worthless. That's a 
Hebrew word that means worth nothing. There is no redeeming value to them whatsoever. And, and, and I won't get into the fact that they're made in the image of God, but what, what's worse than being made in the image of God and not reflecting that image? There's nothing worse. It's, it's an insult. It's, it's horrifying. They're worthless. There's nothing that they have to offer God. There's nothing they can say to God, here is a reason to save me. And I think this is important in sharing the gospel. The unbeliever fools himself if he thinks that God will view him as a little bit better, a little bit more special, a little bit more worthy of God's affections. The reality is that there is nothing in me, nothing in you that moves God to save you, that moves God to salvation. There's nothing that a person has that gives even a slight advantage. God has no compelling reason to save anyone. Now think of this, because I think Noah is sometimes used as an example against that argument. They would say, well, God saw the righteousness of Noah, and that's why he saved him. That's not what the Bible says. Genesis 6-5 tells us the situation right before the flood. God saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There is no asterisk that says except Noah and his family. That was also Noah. So why did God save Noah? Genesis 6.8 tells us, Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. This is a Hebrew way of saying God gave him grace. That's it. That's the only reason. God's decision to save was because of his own grace. God's decision to turn Noah from one whose every, thought, whose every thought was evil to one who desired to worship God, that was God's grace. First lesson. Mankind is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. Second lesson. God has no compelling reason to save anyone. There's a third lesson. God has chosen specific people to save. God has chosen specific people to save. His ultimate intention is to save some, and he's already chosen them. Verse 7 speaks of God restoring his captive people. Now here's a twist. When David wrote this, they weren't yet captive. They weren't in that situation. But out of those captive people in the future, David is asserting that God will, when Yahweh restores he will set apart a people. And by the way, David doesn't pray here. And to my knowledge, nowhere in the Psalms does David ever pray, God, would you grant spiritual salvation to every human being on earth? He never prays that. Now, right now is when you have the temptation to feel you're more righteous than God is. To say, well, that's terrible. He should pray for the salvation of every person on earth. I'm just citing the fact. He never does that. What does he do? He prays for the salvation of God's captive people. A specific subset of humanity set apart for salvation. First lesson. Man is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. Second lesson. God has no compelling reason to save anyone. Third lesson. God has chosen a specific people to save there's a fourth lesson in David's master class of soteriology. Those called by God shall be saved. Those called by God shall be saved. 
In the second half of verse 5, David asserts, For God is with the righteous generation. And we want to be very precise here. God is not with that generation. That generation means all who will be saved by grace. He's not with that generation because they are righteous. No, it's the other way around. They're righteous because God is with them. You see the difference? That's a huge difference. And we've already established that no one seeks after God. So if anyone is seeking after God, it must logically only be because God has opened their spiritual eyes to see and to look and to find. So those called by God shall be saved. First lesson, mankind is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. Second lesson, God has no compelling reason to save anyone. Third lesson, God has chosen a specific people to save. Fourth lesson, those called by God shall be saved. And this is pretty important for us to know. Fifth lesson, those called by God shall remain saved. Those called by God shall remain saved. That the true believer in God will never be rejected by the Lord. He'll never find himself out of favor with God eternally. Oh, he might be disciplined. He might even be killed by the Lord. But he'll never find himself out of favor in an eternal sense. Where do we get this? Verse 6, the second half. Yahweh is his refuge. What is God protecting his people from? He's protecting his people from the most dangerous hazard and menace in all of of, uh, creation And that is God himself. God is the most dangerous enemy you can ever make. And so God himself, if he's your refuge, God is protecting you against himself. That's exactly the whole point of the cross, that Christ took the punishment for your sin to avert the wrath of God away from you and onto Christ. Verse 7 declares that the captive people, the remnant who are true believers, they will be restored. It's certain that all who have exercised genuine saving faith in Yahweh will continue on into eternity with him. And, and this is so important. If it's possible for those who were called to not remain saved, theoretically it is possible for at the end of all time for there to be zero saved people. And all of redemptive history will have been for nothing. David believed in the permanence of even his own salvation. You're familiar with this. Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. He asserts the certainty that he shall remain saved. Mankind is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. God has no compelling reason to save anyone. God has chosen a specific people to save. Those called by God shall be saved And those called by God shall remain saved. See why Psalm 14 is a master class in soteriology? He knew what he was talking about. I'm going to come back to Psalm 14 in a bit. But there's an event in church history that's so important that I, I have a goal to mention this at some level at least once a year in our church. So that it becomes a part of your thinking. I want to go back and tell this story in detail. We go all the way back just over 400 years to the year 1609. 1609 saw the the passing of an era, and that was the Dutch theologian and seminary professor Jacob Arminius. He died very young at age 49, actually. And the very next year, in 1610, all of his followers gathered 
And they name themselves, they call themselves followers of Arminius, or we come to know them as Arminians. And they drew up what they called five articles of faith. And the whole idea was to keep the teaching of Arminius alive and, and well. Now, keep in mind that very, very early after the Great Reformation, we're still in the early days here, the church and the government are, are tied together all throughout Europe. The church and the government are, are in lockstep together. So the Arminians presented these five articles of faith to the government of Holland, where they were in what was called a remonstrance. It means a, a protest. They requested, in fact, that the, the Heidelberg Catechism, which was the official doctrinal statement of the Church of Holland, they requested that the Heidelberg Catechism be altered to reflect these five articles of faith. Now, before I tell you what those five articles were, let me tell you what was behind them. What was their philosophical underpinning? There were some driving ideas that, that put the Arminians to this place of, of these five articles of faith. First of all, they believe that divine sovereignty cannot be compatible with human freedom, that those two cannot mix, that divine sovereignty is separate from human responsibility. They also viewed faith in Christ as completely a, a free and responsible act that is not caused by God, but it's exercised by man independent of God. And because of that, they also believe that since faith can only be exercised by man, then the ability, listen carefully, the ability to generate saving faith is universal to every person. Every person is born able to generate the faith to believe on Christ. And so based on those philosophical positions, the Arminians sent to the state of Holland and to the church of Holland these five articles of faith, and they became known as the five points of Arminianism. The first one is free will. That while human, human nature was seriously damaged by the fall into sin, we're not completely spiritually helpless. That God has every person with an innate ability to repent and believe, and he'll never interfere with man's freedom. The, your eternal destiny depends on the use of your free will. The second point of Arminianism, conditional election. God chose before the foundation of the world all that he foresaw would choose to uh, believe on him, but that election is determined by what mankind does. That they do believe there is a group called the elect, but that you, you get that group in hindsight, not in foresight. Their third point was what they called unlimited atonement or general atonement. That Christ's redeeming work at the cross Listen carefully, this is a, a fine point. Christ's work at the cross made it theoretically possible for every person to be saved, but his work at the cross didn't actually secure salvation for anyone until someone exercises saving faith. So how many people got saved because of the cross? Technically zero until somebody exercises saving faith. Then you add to that number, but theoretically it could be everyone. Their fourth point is that mankind may resist the Spirit's call to salvation. Mankind may resist the Spirit's call to salvation. That all who hear the gospel outwardly, meaning in a, in a message or in a gospel presentation, are also called inwardly by the Spirit of God to salvation, but we may resist the Spirit's call. 
that the man must have faith on his own before the Spirit will regenerate him. And, and so the Spirit, as it were, waits in the wings. And as soon as you say, you know, I think I want to be saved, then in comes rushing the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. The grace of God can be defeated only by the, the willful rebellion of the hearer of the gospel. But you can defeat grace. And then their fifth point, it's not universal to all Arminians. I would say it's the majority position, though. It's possible to fall from grace. It's possible to fall from grace and to lose one's salvation. That by failing to keep the commandments or walking away from Christ, a regenerate person becomes unregenerate once again. So that was the content of the protest, the remonstrance that the Arminians sent to the state of Holland and the church of Holland in 1610. Well, keeping in mind that things in that day moved really, really slowly, in 1618, there was a response made. A national synod or council was called in Dort in, in Holland to examine the Armenians' views because now, by 1618, Armenianism was Christianity. That was the majority position, just like it is today. Now, remembering the church and the state were so closely connected, this council convened on November 13, 1618, and it was made up of 84 Dutch delegates, including eight members of the secular government. It also included 27 delegates from various other nations, Germany, Switzerland, England, Scotland. And this wasn't a weekend getaway. This was 154 meetings over seven months. At their final session on May 9th, 1619, the, the council concluded that the teachings of the Arminians were completely contrary to Scripture, and I'm just giving you history. They didn't have a statement that said, we'll just agree to disagree and enjoy our fellowship in Christ. They used a word. They used the word heresy. They said this is heretical. Now, this might seem odd to us today because Arminianism is so widely accepted. It's the majority position of almost every Southern Baptist church, many other large denominations. But the Council of Dort, taking months to study the Scriptures, declared these five articles heresy. They declared that salvation in Christ is a work of total grace from beginning to end and that mankind didn't contribute one thing to his own salvation. That mankind was spiritually dead, incapable of a godly spiritual choice, in total bondage to sin, total bondage to Satan. And they declared that the ability to believe the gospel, see also Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is the gift of God alone given by God's favor and no other reason, certainly not the merits of a person, certainly not the logic and the ability to say, you know, I believe I need to be saved. In comes the Holy Spirit, just relieved. Oh, good, I'm glad you came to that conclusion. But that's not all the Council of Dort did. They didn't merely reject the five articles. They decided to answer them. And because their answers had already been clearly defined by the great reformer John Calvin, they were the original ones to use the term Calvinism in their answer to the five heretical articles. And in answer to each of the five points, they gave what ever since that time has now been known as the five points of Calvinism. Total depravity or total inability, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And of course, that came to spell the famous acronym TULIP. Back to Psalm 14. First lesson. 
Mankind is utterly incapable of spiritual self-correction. Total depravity. Second lesson. God has no compelling reason to save anyone. Unconditional election. Third lesson. God has chosen a specific people to save. Limited atonement. Fourth lesson. God, those called by God shall be saved. Irresistible grace. And the fifth lesson. Those called by God shall remain saved or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Or if I could put it this way, 2,500 years before the birth of John Calvin in 1509, King David was a Calvinist. God's salvation has always been consistent. He didn't change his own theology beginning in Matthew 1. And so Psalm 14 stands as a monument to the fact that salvation is by the grace of God alone. There is a human responsibility empowered by the, enabled by the power of God, rather, that salvation in Christ is still possible, that it's not too late. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 pictures a pre-Bethlehem Messiah, Jesus, speaking to his people. And he, he says, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him. But that's only possible by the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Psalm 14 is read by the saved and it's read by the lost. My hope is that the saved are comforted by Psalm 14, that we have a sense of gratitude that we were the ones who never sought after God, but He did seek after us. And my hope and prayer is that the lost are confronted by Psalm 14 and they read verse 1, the wicked fool says in his heart there is no God. And they're shocked when they come to the realization that's me. I am the one who acts corruptly, the one who commits abominable deeds. And that Psalm 14 would lead some to open spiritualize under repentance and salvation. God's theology of salvation has always been the same. I, I cannot stress this enough. You didn't get saved one way in the Old Testament and a different way in the New Testament. Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, and has always been based on the cross. Old Testament cross in the future, New Testament cross in the past. It's that simple. So, next time you're reading the Psalms, remember, David was a Calvinist. He knew his salvation theology. I just want to point out one other thing. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. I think one of the great things that we get from the Old Testament is that when King David says salvation. He just means the nation living in peace in their borders without enemies and without threat of death. And the only way to be one of those is spiritual salvation. The Old Testament helps us see spiritual salvation, physical salvation are a combined joint effort. That's why the doctrine of resurrection is pretty important to us, isn't it? We don't say, well, Christ saved me so that I could float around in the universe at least as a saved spirit forever. No, there's spiritual salvation, physical salvation put together. And so I would always, uh, rather than trying to spiritualize the work of Christ on the cross as, as somehow the invisible part is more important. No, it's all a package deal. 
And David has it right that someday salvation comes from Zion. And that simply means that a king that would come from his own body will rule in Jerusalem. It all goes together. All one story. So remember, Psalm 14 confronts the lost with their own abominable deeds and it comforts the saved with the fact that your salvation is God's gift alone. And what does that do, by the way? It creates worship, doesn't it? When you have zero responsibility for your own salvation, then all glory goes to God. I hope Psalm 14 helps you with that. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for just our our kind of little warm-up here to the Lord's Day to look at Psalm 14. And we're astounded, Lord, that King David, by the superintendence of your Spirit, was so precise, so detailed, so nuanced in his explanation of a God who saves, in his warning to those who have rejected the free gift of salvation that, that God has always given to any who would believe on him. Lord, we have read this warning that the workers of iniquity are in great dread. We know that your final judgment is coming. It is, it is sweeping upon us faster than we possibly know. And we who know Christ, we must give you gratitude. We must give you thanks. We don't know any dread. We laugh in the face of death and we smile in the face of eternity. All because of your gracious choice to bring us to Christ. And we thank you and we ask you to make this a day in which we express that thanks. In Christ's name, amen.